So real quick, um, if any of you want to know what can happen in 20 years, what can happen to a man in 20 years, I've got a picture to show you. This is in fact, uh, I, this had to have been when I was in seventh grade uh, or possibly 11th grade, I don't know. Uh, and I, I was lucky to be a student. I, I came into the student ministry when the Covingtons came, similar to Gary. I remember this little baby, Colin, um, on the first Wednesday night or whatever that Richard was there. And, and that family is a gift to me and to so many. And I really do think uh, what a fitting morning to celebrate Richard when we really talk about what does it mean to be a man who finds themselves in the Lord. And so before we get there, there, I want to share with you uh, about this research done from uh, a guy named Professor Garrett Hofstede. He did in 1985, conducted one of the world's most comprehensive studies on national values. And, and through this, he created these six dimensions that whenever used and, and put all together to come up with the Hofstede insight, you can sort of see how particular nations value different things. And one of those dimensions in his sort of experiment is a masculinity and femininity skill. And so they actually rank what are the most masculine countries. And the highest ranking country was Japan with a score of 95, Hungary with a score of 88, and Austria with a score of 79. And I don't remember where America fell, but it was right in the middle of the pack. So in case you were wondering, you can research that yourself. But the criteria for ranking, right, the masculinity, according to this research, is that a high score on the dimension indicates that the society, listen to this, will be driven by competition, achievement, and success. With success being defined by the winner or best in field, the value system starts in childhood and continues throughout one's life, both in work and leisure pursuits. And so according to this research, which is the most comprehensive research done on what does it mean to be masculine, it boils down to competition, achievement, and success. But here's the problem. You guys might not have uh, gotten this yet, but ask anyone a little bit older. The problem with these three categories is they're all failable, okay? No one goes undefeated through life, right? Even Michael Jordan lost 30% of the NBA games he played in. And in fact, Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman both had overall higher career winning percentages, right? Or achievement. Nothing fully gives you the sense of achievement that your soul craves. Freddie Mercury said, you can have everything in the world and still be the loneliest man. Success has brought me world idolization and millions of pounds, but it's prevented me from having the one thing we all need, a loving, ongoing relationship. Success, there's always gonna be someone more successful than you in whatever field you're measuring. John Rockefeller in 1937 was worth about one and a half billion dollars. Economists think that that would be equivalent to 400 billion dollars today. That would make him three times wealthier than Jeff Bezos, right? These categories cannot sustain us. And I, I really do think that, that sort of the endless pursuit of these things like achievement, success, winning, being the best is creating in men a sense of loss and emptiness. And the reaction to that is often destruction and frustration and ultimately creating this spiral 
in our society of destruction because men don't know who or what they were created for. And so, I really think what we need, maybe more than anything else in 2022, in the church, is we need a vision on how men can be formed in the image of God. We need a comprehensive understanding of how to deform men out of the ways of the world, the ways of achievement, accomplishment, and success, and reorient them and reform them into who Jesus says men are to be. And so, there's an excellent book that I wanna tell you about because it just, it really spoke to me on this, but it's uh, called Becoming Kings by Morgan Snyder. So if you're interested in this idea, in this idea of formation of a man, and this idea of becoming, becoming a king, then check that out. But, but what I wanna get at is that if we're to understand what it means to be formed into the image of God, then I really think we have to understand something about our original design, okay? And I think the first thing is that we as men, and hang with me, I'm not like trying to preach some toxic masculinity, but we have to understand that we as men, we were designed to be powerful. You look at, you look at uh, Adam in the garden, right? God designs him, he designs and he builds the garden, and then what is his first command in Genesis 2.15? The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Work it and take care of it. God designed men so that he could entrust his power to care for his creation. And let that sink in for a moment. Maybe forget your sort of religious pretense if you've been hanging around for a while. God just made everything that we know to be his creation, and yet he immediately gives and invites us to work and to take care of it. When he could have easily done it better than us and more effectively, yet he gives us, he entrusts with us that power. Dallas Willard says that the primary work of God is finding men to whom he can entrust his power. And the story of most men is being entrusted with power and bringing harm to themselves and those under their care. So I really do think that it's not that you have men, and, and I think for all of us in here, it's not that there's, these, there's this thirst and this hunger in us for power, right? Some of that is good. Some of that is what brings us into participation with God to see renewal, to see justice, to care for those who God has entrusted us with. And so that stirring of power in you, I don't think is wrong. What is wrong is whenever we step out of God's original design for us and we misuse that power. And that's the problem that is facing us today is men who don't know what to do with the power that God has entrusted them with. And this is not a unique situation. Scripture is peppered, or excuse me, there are men peppered throughout Scripture, right, who did and who struggled to use the power that God entrusted them with. You look at David, 1 Samuel 16, we see that David is entrusted and anointed with the power to lead God's people, the Israelites. Then you flip over to 2 Samuel 11, and suddenly we, we find a very different David, one who sees Bathsheba on a roof, and he kind of has the hots for her, and so he goes and has a relationship with her and becomes intimate with her, and so how does David respond to this situation? 
2 Samuel eleven fourteen. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah, who was Bathsheba's husband. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Only a man entrusted to be a king could sweep his mistakes under the rug by having someone murdered on the front lines of war. And David misuses his power. I think all of us can quickly think of people that we know or that we read about or that we see on TV who are a prime example of misusing and abusing the power that they have been given. And so I think the logical question, right? Why is this happening? Why are men failing at unprecedented rates? Why are men failing to be stewards of what God has given them? And of course, a lot of it is, is that there's sin and we live in a broken world. And I don't wanna dismiss that, but I think we have to peer a little bit deeper into the question, right? Because I think that a lot of it has to do with that we are raising men, we are raising young men, boys, to be formed in the ways of achievement, success, and competition. Frankly, we are raising winners and not Christ followers, right? And that's a big deal. And I think we've gone so far down this path because we have forgotten who we are, right? Gary talked about this idea last week that, that if, if we look for our identity, right, horizontally, then we'll look to what we have, what we can do, and what others say about us. Yet there's a different invitation in scripture. And that invitation is to understand that our identity as men comes from being a king of the Father. And I think there's a great, great place to look in Ephesians 2 to understand what does it mean to be a king? What does it mean to be a man whose identity is anchored in the Lord? And really, when we answer that question, I think it's paramount to remember who God is and who we are. And that's why I think Ephesians 2 so easily and accurately, obviously accurately, it's scripture, but so easily sums this up. So listen to this, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. This is who we were. We have to understand this part of our identity to understand the goodness of who God is. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Okay, not the most fun thing to remind you of this morning, but apart from Christ, without Christ, you are dead to your transgressions, you are a slave to sin, you are on a quest to gratify your own flesh every minute of the day, and by nature, deserving of wrath. Have a good Sunday. <laughs> but if we don't understand who we were before Christ, then we miss out on the beauty of who God is. Ephesians 2, 4. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. I think one of the reasons that we struggle to really, really fully understand what we just read 
is because honestly, the English language does a terrible job of translating this word love here that Paul uses in Ephesians 2.4, right? And, and we, we know that, or you might know, but in the Greek language, there's three different words for love, okay? We could use, in our language, three different words for love because frankly, I can say I love pizza and I can say I love my son and it's the same word, but I do think you trust me when I say that I love my son a lot more than pizza. And I really like pizza, okay? There's nothing wrong with that, right? But this, this agape word that Paul uses right here in Ephesians 2 is really the most uh, sincere, pure, highest form of love that the Greek language knows, right? And it really is this love that is in motion. It is a love that is moving towards you, that is moving towards us, even when we don't want it to move towards us, even when we don't want that love, even when we don't want anything to do with God. Agape love always moves in, even when it's not reciprocated, not looking for anything in return. And then you look at this word mercy, right? Mercy is, is just the moral quality of feeling compassion and especially of showing kindness towards someone in need. So I love this. I, uh, when I was kind of reading through this, this text, the, uh, y'all are gonna think I'm nerdy for saying I love this. I am kind of nerdy, all right? But the Septuagint translated this, which was the first translation out of the original language, translated mercy here in Ephesians 2.4 as hasad. Okay, hasad is a word that really doesn't make any sense outside of the Hebrew language because it was a word that the Hebrews used to define the relationship between God and God's people. And that word was to mean an unwavering, an unstoppable, an unshakable commitment. And when we read that God is rich in mercy, we are reading that God is unwaveringly committed to us. That God's love and care and compassion will not be disrupted by anything on earth. And he is rich in that mercy and he is great in his love for us. So who is God? If we're gonna understand our identity by knowing who we are and who is God. Who is God? He is a God that is overflowing with love for his children, who seeks our well-being even when we don't want it, even when we try to hide from it, and is unwavering in, our, in his pursuit of us. He is rich in compassion. And when we acknowledge who we are and who God is, we become alive. Look at verse five been made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming of ages, he might show incomparable riches of grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Men who are alive behave in a way that they know they're accepted. Right? We don't need to find our acceptance in our family, in our spouse, in our job, in our 401k, in the index fund. We know that because of what God did for us and because of how God thinks of us, rich in mercy, great with love, that we've been accepted. And that's enough for us. We don't need and search for more. And then if, if we behave that way and, and motivation is what moves 
behavior, then we are motivated from a sense of living out of abundance, okay? And I don't mean abundance in that we are abundantly blessed with things of the world, but look at that. We are abundant in that we have incomparable riches of grace. Friends, those five words give you more than the world could ever give you. That's our identity. And I know it's hard to believe that. It's hard for me to believe that at times, but that's the reality of the God we believe in and the God that has invited you to be a son or a daughter of the king, of the throne, right? And, and I know that there might be someone or people in who are here who, who have never really heard that the idea that there's a God who has an unwavering commitment and love and pursuit of us, right? And it would be a privilege for us to have a conversation with you about how you can have a relationship with that God. And I know this is the middle of the sermon. I feel like I do this a lot. Um, but, but I just wanna invite you into the reality that there is a kingdom and every kingdom has to have a king. And that king is Jesus, right? And he is the king because he laid down his life and conquered the grave so that we could have renewed relationship with the Father if we commit, believe, and follow him. And so if that's you, if you want to have that relationship, if you want to live forth from a place of abundance and acceptance, and go, you can go back to that room right now. I really, it will not bother me in the least, or you can after the service. And we'd love to have a conversation with you. And so once we realize who we were made to be and who made us and who we belong to, we can begin to cultivate our lives around forming habits which draw us into deeper and deeper reflection of the Father, right? And the first habit I wanna talk through is this idea of slowing down, the habit of slowing down, right? If you've ever been or ever driven, I should say, between LA and San Francisco, you've got a couple different options, right? You can take the most direct, fast route, it'll be four-ish, five hours, depending on traffic, and you can take Interstate 5, okay? And this will be your scenery. Maybe. Yeah, okay? Super cool, right? Kind of looks like 45 or 35 or 20 or 10, right? But looks like a good old interstate, right? Or you can do what I've gotten to do a couple times with my family, and you can take the Pacific Coast Highway, and this will be your view. Whoa. Now, I gotta warn you though, this is gonna take about twice as long, and you're gonna be about four times as likely to get car sick, so grab that Dramamine, right? But yeah, it is worth it, but it is a lot, lot longer of a drive. And I share that because I think that thinking about this drive, thinking about Interstate 5 and the PCH reminds me that often I want God to be the interstate God, but he's the PCH God. He's the God that's not afraid of the slow and steady route. And we see this all throughout scripture, right? You see in Genesis 15 and 17 that, that Abraham is promised that he will be the descendant of many, many generations, right? He'll be the father to many, many generations. And he's told that at 75. And how long does he have to wait for Sarah to become pregnant? Another 25 years. 
Why would God take 25 years to deliver on his promise? I don't know, but I know that he's not afraid of the slow and steady route. What about the Israelites in the wilderness? It took them 40 years on a journey that most scholars say should have taken 11 days. It took 40 years. And I think what is massive about understanding what it means to be formed as a man in the image of God is to get comfortable with the fact that there's no shortcuts. There's not a Spark Notes version. There's not a conference or a class or one particular book that you can read. But formation into the image of God takes settling in and being willing to go the long and slow and steady route. There's a book called Three Mile Per Hour God. And it's by a Japanese theologian, which I've never read a Japanese theologian. I felt like that sounded like I was some like niche I was into. <laughs> Japanese theologians. But Kosuke Koyama. And he has this book called Three Miles Per Hour God. And in this book, he basically says that, that if, if Jesus walked everywhere in his ministry, right, from town to town, village to village, and the average person walks three miles per hour, then it is safe to say that Jesus's pace for ministry was three miles per hour. Because I think also part of the habit of slowing down is that we have to understand that some of us are not only moving at a pace that far exceeds the pace of Jesus. And I know you've got all these arguments, well, they didn't have cars, they didn't have this. Yeah, I get it, but I promise you, you and I are living at a speed that I don't think God intends us to live at. I really don't. In John 9, 1, John 9 is one of my favorite passages of scripture. And Jesus heals this man at Bethesda. And I've read this passage many, many times. It meant a lot to my wife and I when our son was sick. And it, Jesus has this beautiful remark that, that he heals this child, sorry, this man, so that the works of the Lord can be manifested in him. But what I failed to miss for so long was how this healing came about, the context of it. If you look at the first words, we don't even have to turn there, but the first four words of John 9, 1. As he passed by. As he passed by. How is it that Jesus was just passing by? Surely, right? Surely the Messiah had more important, more pressing things to do than just a leisurely stroll in which he was just passing by. Uh, you almost think that wouldn't have every minute of every day that Jesus had have been sort of pre-log, pre-calculate to where he was always moving from place to place to talk and to heal and to chat with as many people as possible. I mean, he was the most important person to ever walk the face of the planet with the most important mission. And yet, he just passed by. How many of you have just passed by anywhere recently? We are such a task-oriented culture, and especially with men, when we're being formed in achievement and success and competition, that I really do think what so many of us need is to slow down so we can catch up with God, to move at a pace that mimics not the world, not your companies, not your bosses, 
but mimics your Messiah. And so I do wanna say just a quick little bit to, to dads, and I, I know that we're talking about men, it's not Father's Day, but I really do think for those of us that are fathers, we have to understand our place as being the pace car in our family. When our kids see us rushing in and out the door for work, always connected on our phone, responding to every email instantaneously, then we are setting a pace for our family that moves at the speed of culture and not at the speed of Jesus. We have to be willing to be present and to model for our family that it's okay to take a break from the technology and the demands and the things that the world is saying they always need for us. Model Sabbath, right? Model Sabbath and, and students, when your parents tell you you can't go anywhere on Saturday morning because you Sabbath as a family, you say, oh yes, Sabbath is good because Jesus has told me to do that, right? And we model and we set the pace for these things in our home if we want us and our families to be formed into the image of God. The second thing is we, we cultivate a habit of choosing the lower seat. Francis Schaeffer was a 20th century American theologian and, and he has an, an essay called the, the Lord's Work in the Lord's Way. And I just wanna read you a short excerpt from this. Taking the lower place in a practical way, thus reflecting the mentality of Christ who humbled himself even to death on a cross should be a Christian's choice. To the extent we want power are in the flesh and the Holy Spirit has no part of us. Christ put a towel around himself and washed his disciples' feet. We should ask ourselves from time to time, whose feet am I washing? The world tells men that masculinity is all about achievement, competition, success. And yet hear the words of Jesus. So the last will be first, the first will be last. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who are humbled will exalt themselves. What we build on our own, we have to sustain on our own. And even if we achieve that, then ultimately it succumbs to the grave when we do. But what the Lord builds, the Lord sustains and lasts for eternity. And if we want to build alongside the Lord, his kingdom, then we have to be willing to take the lowest seat. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. If Jesus was willing to take up the task of a servant and wash the disciples' feet, then really, what is it that could be asked of any of us that we would be above? Right? No task are we above, are we too good for, if our Messiah washed feet like a servant, right? And so as men, we form and we move and we habit our lives, we create habits in our lives where we are routinely comfortable with the lowest seat, right? And then the third thing, we're almost done. I know it's getting late. Cowboys play tomorrow night though, by the way, you're welcome. It's Cooper Rush time. I'm kidding, nobody actually believes that, right? <laughs> the third thing is, it's the habit 
of being with the Father, right? We cultivate a habit in which we routinely spend time with the Father. John 15, five says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing, right? So when we abide, there's a connectedness, right? You think about a branch that is overwhelmed by vines. That is what John is telling us that our relationship with Jesus should look like. That the vines are overbearing, overwhelming every part of us and they are like that, we get to that place whenever we spend time with Jesus and we abide, right? And so we do that through things like reading and meditating on scripture. We Sabbath, we rest, and I think particularly men, we pray, we pray, right? We begin our day on our knees with the Lord and end our day on our knees with the Lord. Leonard Ravenhill says that no man, I don't care how colossal his intellect, no man is greater than his prayer life. And so, if you wanna do one thing, one thing that you can do to begin to form your life in the image of God, I challenge you, wake up 15 minutes earlier tomorrow and pray. It doesn't have to be complicated. Set your alarm 15 minutes earlier and spend that time praying and then do it again the next day and the next day. And I think you will begin to see that your life shifts from being formed in the image of the world and into the image of God. And you know, the whole reason that we can even have a conversation about being formed in the image of God. The reason that there is an alternative way for us than what the, the, what the world provides is because of what Christ did on the cross. And so we're gonna get ready to take communion. And as we do, I just encourage you, spend just a minute, and I know it's late, it won't be long, but it'll be worth it. Spend a minute confessing in whatever ways you have been formed by the world. Where does the world have too much influence on your life? Spend a minute confessing that. Matthew 26, 26 says, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Now just spend a moment thanking God that there is an alternative, that there is a new way in which we can live. There's a way that we can live as new creations and thank God for sending his son to provide that new way.
Matthew 26, 27 says, then he took a cup and when he had it given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we thank you that there is a new way, that we don't have to be slaves to the patterns and the rhythms and the standards of the world, but that instead you have shown us that we can have abundance, we can be accepted, and we can be fulfilled in life with you. And so, Father, as, as we go about our week and as we step out of this place, Lord, Father, I pray a special blessing over the men in this room, Lord, and whether or not they're in school or in work, Father, I pray that you would, one, protect them from the destruction and the evil one which lurks all throughout this world and especially, Lord, tries to tempt men in ways that are unthinkable, unimaginable, Lord, but I know it happens, so I pray a hedge of protection over them, Lord. And Father, I also pray that you would begin to stir in every man in here what will it look like to further cultivate my life in a way in which I reflect more of you, Father, and less of the world. We pray this in your name, amen.